The phrase soft power was coined in the 1990s by the American political science boffin Joseph Nye. Nye was making the excellent point that when it comes to projecting national stature on the global stage, there are weapons more effective than tanks, warships and fighter jets. Friends can be won and people influenced by your country's music, its food, its fashion, its science, its sport, its nature, its generosity, its values, its demeanour. The United States, wielder of the mightiest military force in human history, has often overlooked this. The US has been the proverbial person who, grasping a hammer, thinks everything resembles a nail, except that in this instance the hammer owner has forgotten that they also have a guitar, a saucepan, a sewing machine, a medicine cabinet, a football, a cuddly marsupial, money, some elementary sense of right and wrong, and considerable charm. The US is, as it happens, in top spot in 2022's Monocle Soft Power Survey, rewarded for its leadership in the defence of Ukraine, for the incalculable might of its culture, and for at least pausing its experiment in government by circus. You can, and indeed should, read the complete results of the Soft Power Survey in the current issue of Monocle magazine, although, spoiler alert, it has not gone well for Russia. But in this show, we look at some specific kinds of soft power and how and why they work. How is panda diplomacy a thing? Are people impressed by royal pageantry? And can bonds between nations be cemented by a decent feed? This is The Foreign Desk. It started back at the end of the Cold War and we had China coming out of its isolation and wanting to build itself as a presence on the world stage. And as part of those state visits, they gifted pandas to them. There hadn't been a live panda in the US since the 1930s. And when there was one, it was real high society stuff. It was a sensation. You know, oftentimes people gather for these meetings and there's tension and there are really important things that they need to talk about. But breaking bread is a very intimate thing to do together. And if you can put your guest at ease and make them feel that they've been honored and respected properly, they're going to be much more open to whatever it is you're there to talk about. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. The tactic of sending animals abroad as ambassadors is not unique to China, but panda diplomacy has become the phrase which defines the practice. And though China has cut down on the human diplomacy these last few years, the pandas are still out there. Sihai and Jingjing arrived in Qatar just ahead of the World Cup. Earlier, I spoke to Dr Paul Jepson, a conservation expert and the course director of Oxford University's Master of Science programme in Nature, Society and Environmental Policy. Paul is also the co-author of Diplomats and Refugees, Panda Diplomacy, Soft Cuddly Power and the New Trajectory in Panda Conservation. I began by asking Paul to explain why animals are so effective as diplomatic gifts. It goes back as long as history. So I used to work in Indonesia a lot, and there, you know, the different sultanates were giving animals way, way back. And I think there's a couple of reasons why they're so good. One is that, of course, if you give a living animal, the receiver of that gift has to keep it alive. <laughs> and if you keep an animal alive, you need a place to put it. And then it becomes a bit of a centerpiece, not only for your family, but your courts, and then in modern times for a city zoo. So actually, you're giving a legacy of your presence, but when people see an exotic animal, we always ask, like, 
well, where does it come from? And so you as the giver, your country or your king or whoever it might be, keeps in the mind of the recipient or the recipient's community and nation. And then, of course, it also is interesting because they almost put an obligation of the recipient towards the giver. Because if you go back again and the animal's dead, it doesn't show that you've been respected, if you see what I mean. And that relationship and that need to keep it alive creates a, a lasting connection between the person who gives an animal and the person who receives it, or the countries in the more modern case. But animals have generally been used to build relationships of shared interest in animals, of trust, and a sort of symbolic of a commitment for wanting that longer-term connection based on mutual benefit, usually. Well, it is the panda that people think of, certainly in modern times, when they think of animals being used in this way, and that's where we get the phrase panda diplomacy from. Is there something about the panda itself which makes it a uniquely potent asset in this respect? Is it just the fact that they are so extraordinarily cute and weird and odd and everybody is fascinated by them? Well, there is all of that, as you suggest, but I think there's some special things about the panda. One is that only occurs in China, and China was, if you like, very clever or very astute, maybe, in that it very early on, when I say early on, this was about 40 or 50 years ago, it moved to assure that it had ownership of all pandas in the world. We could argue, for instance, something like the tiger or the Komodo dragon is equally extraordinary, maybe not quite as cute, but equally extraordinary. But those, if you like, they spread out of those countries quite quickly and they were bred and owned by other countries. But that combination of cuteness and its emblematic and symbolic value of the panda and the fact that you can only get them from China as giving it that potency. Whereas nowadays, because in some ways, zoos and animals are so international, anybody could give anybody a tiger if they felt the need to do so. Just going back to the cuteness of the panda, is that especially important to China in the modern context, in that there's something unmenacing, reassuring about the gift of a panda? I mean, I, I come from a country, Australia, which has an enormous arsenal of soft power assets in this respect, but frankly, most of our native fauna will take your face off if you look at it the wrong way, whereas the panda is obviously not going to do that. No, this is a really good point. So in the research we did, we sort of asked that question, actually, and we did find out that there was a con conscious recognition, actually, of China thinking about what would be its national animal in a new era. And of course, you always associate the red dragon with China, which is quite a sort of challenging and ferocious animal. So the panda was seen as, at the time when China was coming out of its periods of isolation, as a symbol, as an animal, as an emblem, which sort of conveyed a friendly, non-aggressive persona, if you like. What are some concrete examples of China leveraging the panda for diplomatic advantage? The whole idea of panda diplomacy, it started back at the end of the Cold War and we had America and Russia at loggerheads on it. And then China coming out of its isolation and wanting to build itself as a presence on the world stage, but not wanting to align itself with either of the two big superpowers at that time. As they're coming out, they had state visits with Russia and then the US and also the UK. And as part of those state visits, they gifted pandas to them. You know, that's the origin of the notion of panda diplomacy, where this was the gift, and it was a hugely influential gift at the time. I mean, you can imagine that there hadn't been a live panda in the US since the 1930s. And when there was one, it was real high society stuff. 
So for the US to be given a panda, same in London, it was a sensation. People are seeing these pandas and thinking, we're feeling wonderful about having this panda. So that sort of filters over to feeling good about China. What do we know about how these decisions get made? Uh, Is the allocation of pandas part of the negotiation at trade agreements, as in agree to this pipeline and we'll throw in a couple of pandas as well? Or is it normally the thing they send afterwards as an afterthought, much as one might send, I don't know, a bunch of flowers or a gift hamper to the other party to a recently concluded deal? So what happens at the moment in the modern era of panda diplomacy, and just to stress to your listeners that it's not gift giving anymore, it's a sort of lease model in it, and it's done within the context of international conservation and endangered species conservation. That's how it's allowed, if you like, internationally. So all pandas are part of captive breeding programmes. And those captive breeding programmes, they happen in zoos. So what seems to happen is that a number of zoos around the world would like to have a panda exhibit. And that in some ways puts the zoos in the sort of Premier League of world zoos. But if you'd like to ask for a panda, you first of all have to build relationships in these international networks of panda keeping, of which, of course, the Chinese State Forestry Department, they manage the Wulong Breeding Centre. They're very influential in it. But the panda is a national treasure. So it's classified as a state national treasure in China. That means they can only be allowed to go out of China with the approval of the Politburo. Now, of course, the highest level of decision making in China, they have a pretty busy agenda. So what seems to happen is that when there is a major trade deal going on between one country and China, the zoo in the Western country or also ASEAN countries as well, or or Australia, That gives them an opportunity for the zoo and the state forestry department to recommend to the Politburo as part of their bigger agenda of talking about this trade deal to recommend that this zoo gets a panda. It's quite regulated. It goes to quite a high level, but you almost need that window of opportunity associated with a trade deal to do it. And then, of course, then as this happens, the sort of other side of it, it's a nice seal of approval as a symbol of that trade deal because the panda comes over or it's announced that it's coming over. The politicians usually get involved in that. And it sort of symbolizes long-term friendly relationship. We are, at least in the Chinese mind, that the recipient country is going to host a living national treasure of China. <laughs> when you put it like that, that's quite significant. From what we know of past experience of panda diplomacy, what conditions does China impose upon or request from the host country? Like, how big a thing is it to prepare to host a couple of pandas? Oh, it's a big deal. So the host country, and it's actually not a host country, actually, often it's a host zoo, which is a private enterprise or can be, you know, a charity. So first of all, they will have to demonstrate that they have the technical animal husbandry capacity to host a very difficult to keep animal. That is non-trivial, having that. So it's only the more established, well-resourced zoos can do it. Then, of course, they have to have the place to keep them. I mean, you're looking at 9, 10 million US for the enclosure, the exhibit for it. And then you also have to lease it from the Chinese state. And it's roughly a million dollars a year to do that. So you, you sort of checked out that you've got the technical ability to leave it because you know, this is good because everybody would be embarrassed if one of the Chinas died. It just wouldn't be great. You need to demonstrate that you've got the business plan, I suppose, to be able to maintain a panda or a pair of pandas during the period of their lease. That was Oxford University's Dr Paul Jepson. You're listening to The Foreign Desk on Monocle 24. 
This is The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. The menu at a state banquet is never just about the food. I spoke to Lauren Bernstein, founder and CEO of the Culinary Diplomacy Project in Washington, D.C. Lauren previously worked at the U.S. Department of State, where she directed a program that used food as a soft power diplomatic tool. I began by asking Lauren to explain the term culinary diplomacy and what it's actually about. Food has been used as a diplomatic tool since the beginning of civilization. It's the best way to engage and welcome people and teach them about your culture. The State Department took it to a different level because what they did was they organized a group of about 100 really fantastic U.S. chefs from across the country and tapped them as food ambassadors of the United States and our culture and organized a program where we sent them out to our different U.S. embassies around the world to engage in public diplomacy efforts. You know, there are different ways that you can engage in culinary diplomacy. There's the government-to-government engagement, which is what you see when we have like a state dinner or a state visit, which is another way that the State Department engaged their chefs. We would have a visiting leader. We would bring in a chef to do the meal that had some connection to that culture, whether the chef had that culture in their background or had just perhaps visited that country through our program. And they would prepare a meal that was American, but with influences from that visiting culture to respect that country and to show them that we put a lot of effort into the meal. So there's this government to government diplomacy, but then there's the government to foreign public, which is what the other part of the program was when we were sending these chefs to our embassies all over the world. The idea was to engage our chefs with the citizens of another country and do that using food to teach about our culture, but also to learn about theirs. How do you decide what actually constitutes American food? That's an interesting question. So one of the big goals of that program at the State Department was to dispel actually the myths of U.S. cuisine, uh, because a lot of people globally see the U.S. as just sort of a fast food nation, hamburgers and hot dogs, drive throughs a lot of genetically modified foods. There are all these stereotypes out there. And so the U.S., while we are absolutely a melting pot of cultural cuisines, which is what makes this country so special, we're also very regional in our cuisine. And that's something that's definitely not understood broadly overseas. And so a lot of what we try to focus on is showcasing our different regions and how that changes our cuisine, just like every country. You know, every country has their own regional cuisines, and so do we. And so Maybe it's bringing a chef from the Pacific Northwest to showcase the particular ingredients that we use there and how that impacts our food and the food culture and and also the people who have settled there, you know, the immigrant populations that also influence the food in that region. So there are a lot of really interesting things that influence our food nationally. And so that's what we try to focus on when we're showcasing American food. A lot of this is obviously, as a lot of soft power projections are, about creating a good impression of a particular country and encouraging warm feelings towards it, which you can certainly do with food. But at the State Department in particular, how did you go about measuring the success of this? Did you ever see tangible consequences that you could see were definitely to do with the diplomatic culinary partnership? I think any time we would bring in a chef to engage with a visiting delegation, to focus on you know, a meal, you could always see the change in tone of that gathering. 
people love chefs. Presidents and prime ministers, they're people. And every time I would bring a chef to meet one of them, you know, who was preparing that meal, there was always excitement from that leader. And they always were excited to talk to the chef and engage with them and oftentimes knew who they were and had heard of them because there was some maybe connection to their country as well. And it brings a different tone to the evening or the meal where it puts people at ease and they feel more comfortable. And anytime you can do that in a diplomatic setting, you're taking a giant step forward because oftentimes people gather for these meetings and there's tension and there are really important things that they need to talk about. But breaking bread is a very intimate thing to do together. And when you can influence that meal even further and make it special, if you can put your guest at ease and make them feel that they've been honored and respected properly, they're gonna be much more open to whatever it is you're there to talk about. And so I've certainly seen that have an impact. In reading, you can see how some treaties, some negotiations, they happen over meals, they're signed over meals. It's usually that small intimate gathering that really gets everybody on the same page and gets the documents signed at the end of the day, I think. That being the case, how much research has to go into the personal preferences of upcoming guests? Have you ever known of a situation where broccoli was put on the plate of somebody who just was not going to eat it? Yes, and they threw it across the room in a fit of rage. (laughs) No, that has not happened. Thank goodness. We are lucky at the State Department, as um, with every probably government entity that entertains, you receive a, a list of preferences from whoever's visiting. So you get a heads up on any dietary restrictions or any just food preferences of things they just don't like. That was Lauren Bernstein of the Culinary Diplomacy Project. This is The Foreign Desk. Do stay with us. You're listening to The Foreign Desk on Monocle 24. If, in melancholy circumstances, 2022 reminded of the extraordinary, if arguably somewhat weird, power of the British Crown to compel the globe's attention. In the days following the death of Queen Elizabeth II, I spoke to Nick Robertson, international diplomatic editor for CNN, from his post at Canada Gate outside Buckingham Palace. You know, the perception, I would say, here from where I'm at, because we're close to what Buckingham Palace is providing in terms of information about events, they've really invested in this, what is essentially a changing of the guard, you know, from queen to king. And I say that they've invested in it because they've got all these plans in place that have been rolled out, as people have said, to the minute. So, you know, from where I'm sitting, it seems that they've put in the time and effort to prepare for this moment that they knew was going to come because it was a moment by which the monarchy would be measured. And in terms of perception of how the public are perceiving this or the brand of the monarchy is, it feels as if the brand is as strong as it ever was. I mean, of course, the Queen was a principal part in that and we don't know quite how King Charles III will fill that role. But at the moment, from where I'm at, maybe I'm too close, but that's how it feels. I obviously don't need to tell you of all people that this is going to be an absolutely immense global televisual event. That being the case, do you think the image that the people who tune into this are getting of Britain as opposed to the monarchy is accurate? How much of modern Britain do you think is reflected in what the monarchy projects overseas? You know, I think one of the things that you really get here is 
the cross-cultural nature of what the country has become. King Charles spoke about that in his speech, that, you know, during the lifetime of the Queen, it's become a country of multiple cultures, multiple faiths. So the face of the UK has changed in that time, but all the faces of the UK seem to be speaking with one voice about the Queen. Look, it is a self-selective process in a way that if you go out on the street and you, you get in line to go pay your respects to the Queen's coffin, then, you know, you would naturally be somebody who would have stronger feelings towards the monarchy. But I think what we're seeing on the streets is a reflection of what Britain has become, which is a vastly different place than the post-World War II Britain of the early 1950s when the Queen came to the throne. You know, and I was in Scotland as well and Northern Ireland. And I have to say, you know, you have unionists and nationalists in both countries. I didn't get that feeling talking to people that here was a unionist and here was a nationalist. People who were nationalists in both Scotland and Ireland, were, Northern Ireland, were telling me that they were very supportive of what the Queen had done and were willing to give King Charles, you know, a shot to see how well he could do. Big shoes to fill in, they said, but they wanted to see how he would do. All that said, do you think there is any argument that the monarchy does create an idea of the United Kingdom? This idea of the country is a somewhat staid, stuffy, hidebound, old-fashioned sort of place. Sure it does. That's where the monarchy comes from. It comes from a system of an entitled elite that maintain their place of authority in the country. And along comes a parliament hundreds of years ago and things begin to change. And I think the evolution that we see today, the aristocracy is not as big and as entitled and as powerful as it was. And you cannot escape that at the pinnacle of the aristocracy is the monarchy. But again, it's an evolution and it changes. And I think the royals are acutely aware of that as everyone else. There have been dissenting voices over the last little while, and many of them have focused on the monarch's place as the head of what was an empire which spanned, well, pretty much the entirety of the world at one point, and which, like all empires do, did not do, I think it's fair to say, unalloyed good in all of the territories it conquered. Does maintaining the monarchy, as these people have argued, do you think it prevents a proper reckoning with empire, or is there perhaps some sort of case to be made that maintaining the monarchy kind of encourages that conversation to continue? These are great questions, and it's very hard to answer them simply, I think. Beyond a doubt, you know, the monarchy grew stronger and richer through the empire, and that was at the detriment to people within that empire. As the empire fell apart, the Queen pulled together some remnants of that empire in the Commonwealth, Commonwealth of 53 Nations, which really sort of identifies itself today because the sovereign of the UK is only the sovereign of 14 other countries, is one that sort of sees itself more defined by commonalities in business, in sporting events, in these regards, I think, rather than the sort of overlordship. Which gets to your point of how do you ever have a reckoning with that past, and I, I think it's hugely important and difficult. If there's anyone that can reckon with the past, that surely should be the monarchy. But when you try to sort of break down the ideas of empire, of course there were empires that go way back before the British Empire, you know, Roman, Greek, or whatever. And, you know, how far back do you go in history? 
I suppose you could look at what happened to the original Britons when the Romans arrived here and never recovered because the Angles and Saxons came in the south and then the Vikings from the north and all of that. But the deep, I think, hurt that the empire has caused is more visible because, as I was saying, it's on the streets of our country today. And there are people, and we've seen this through the statues protests here, who feel that sense of empire wronging them as being very, very real. And rightly, they should feel that way. Can this monarchy evolve towards that? Look, if the popular voice says you need to do this, then that's the direction the monarchy will be pushed in. The monarchy, if nothing, knows how to survive. And it is shaped by what people want. Just finally then, do you think there's any way at all that King Charles III can hope to have the same diplomatic heft his mother required, or was that presence eventually a function of her longevity, that she'd just become such a permanent fixture that she was seen as this, I guess, solid and reliable and considerable diplomatic force? Well, she came to the throne at a time when the United Kingdom was still a very large global force to be reckoned with. The world was reconstructing itself out of the ashes of World War II. And therefore, there was a dynamic that existed there where Britain carried more weight in that dynamic in shaping the world. And the Queen could have a bigger role in that than I think Charles can have in hope of shaping a significantly similar diplomatic heft that the Queen had, because the role of the United Kingdom is more diminished. We don't have a voice as strong as we did in the European Union, for example. There are members of the Commonwealth that feel that's not a good idea. The British Empire, what remains of it, is not as malleable as it was when Queen Elizabeth came to the throne. That was CNN's international diplomatic editor, Nick Robertson. You're listening to The Foreign Desk on Monocle 24. Soft power, like any power, can backfire. There is little doubt that Qatar perceived its hosting of the World Cup as a major soft power triumph, but did it attract quite the kind of attention Qatar wanted? Well, earlier I spoke to Dr Paul Michael Brannigan, Senior Lecturer in Sport Management and Policy at Manchester Metropolitan University. Paul is also the author of Qatar and the 2022 FIFA World Cup, Politics, Controversy, Change. I began by asking Paul why Qatar wanted to host the World Cup in the first place. Well, I think it's a great question, Andrew, and I think the key thing there is if you have to really look at the regional sort of politics of Qatar. So Qatar is a small state in what historically has been quite a hostile region of the world. So one of the key things that Qatar's looked to do is two things. The first is overcome its invisibility on the world stage, number one. And number two is shore up its national safety and security. And this is really where the World Cup has really built into this. Qatar have been looking for a mechanism through which to promote itself on the global stage. Now, apart from a World Cup or Olympic Games, there's not really much else that can do that in the way these events can with their billions and billions of audience numbers, etc. So the World Cup really for Qatar has been about promoting itself on the world stage, number one. But number two, you know, really showcasing its right to sovereign independence and in doing so to shore up its national security. 
Clearly, it's given Qatar a greater profile on the world stage than it had before the World Cup began, or indeed before it was announced that Qatar would be hosting it. But how do you think it is going for them as a soft power ploy in creating a favourable image of Qatar? Because it's occurred to me more than once amid all the criticism that they've had over the last few weeks in particular, that whereas people have criticised countries like China and Russia, which have hosted high-profile international tournaments in recent years. People know other things about China and Russia other than the shortcomings of their present governments, whereas, as you were just sort of saying there, give or take its airline and Al Jazeera, nobody really knows very much about Qatar. Yeah, and I think this is, this is really key because I think what Qatar and the 2022 Cup remind us of is the inherent dangers associated with, first of all, raising international awareness of yourself, so trying to gain soft power, but also really using sport mega events in order to achieve such an outcome. So let's take Qatar's neighbour, the UAE, for example. It's hosted recently the Expo, arguably the largest non-sporting event there is on the planet, yet it hasn't received the kind of scrutiny that Qatar has around the World Cup. And we see this all the time. It's these countries that try to host these major sports events tend to actually get the brunt of international criticism. And as you alluded to right there, you know, there's a real irony here. Qatar's looked to use the World Cup to promote a positive image of itself on the global stage. But in doing so, the irony really here is that actually what it's done is potentially damage its image and actually raise awareness of some of its issues at home related to human rights abuses, accusations of corruption, etc., etc. Do you think the Qataris will have been genuinely surprised by the criticisms they've received, especially in the days just before it kicked off and indeed since? I can categorically tell you, Andrew, yes, they were shocked because I've asked them this question, I've sat with them and they've, they've told me this. So, look, I mean, I think that they certainly weren't naive. Any host that hosts the Olympic Games or a World Cup or an event like this is going to get some sort of international scrutiny. They've certainly been surprised by the level at which Qatar has been scrutinised globally by such a sort of wide range of global actors. And I put that down to, really, I think, the world's shock that Qatar was awarded this tournament, you know, and bearing in mind it beat off competition for the likes of the UK, Japan, Australia, and the US. These are countries with a much richer football pedigree. So I think a lot of it is down to surprise. But yes, certainly the Qataris were surprised the level of scrutiny they've received. In particular, there's been scrutiny of the treatment of the many, many migrant workers who built these fabulous stadiums that the football is taking place in. There are a lot of figures doing the rounds about supposed deaths and injuries among those workers. What do we actually know for certain about that? Well, I think we know for certain that there have been serious you know, issues in Qatar, and this is certainly something that Qatar has admitted to in the past. You know, there's a lot of work that has taken place, but still an awful lot of work that needs to continue taking place in terms of improving the living and working conditions, particularly for uh, expatriate workers working within the construction industry. I don't think we know the exact figure of how many fatalities, very sad fatalities we've had on World Cup related infrastructure, because normally Qatar present or they class World Cup-related infrastructure as anything 
to do with the World Cups, not just stadiums, but it might be, for example, transport or whatever else. And obviously, we don't know how many actually get reported either. So I don't think we have a really clear understanding of exactly how many people have, have sadly died. What we do know for certain is there are issues. Qatar has continued working to try and rectify these issues, but there's a lot more work that needs to take place in, in regards to the human rights of expatriate workers in Qatar. Is there any hope that the scrutiny it has attracted might have improved the lot of migrant workers in Qatar in the long term? I think it actually goes beyond that. And I think, yes, I mean, I think what we've tended to see, I think it's it's you know quite right that these hosts that want to host the major World Cup or Olympic Games, you know, they should really be meeting certain criteria. And I don't think Qatar really met the right kind of criteria in many people's eyes. So what's now happened is, of course, you know, the scrutiny has hopefully led to sustainable change. I can say it has led to some change. I would obviously can't say whether that will be sustainable beyond the World Cup. I really hope that that change continues and the, you know, the conditions for migrant workers continues to improve. We will have to wait and see. But what I like to think of one legacy here is that in future, these hosts or any host that actually bid for an Olympic Games or a World Cup, that they're more, you know, sort of social, political, cultural issues are taken in consideration. And that it's a much more of a stronger discussion point moving forward that, you know, if you're going to have the privilege of hosting these events, then you really need to have your house in order. So I hope that's a long term legacy for other countries. That was Dr. Paul Michael Brannigan. His book, Qatar and the 2022 FIFA World Cup, Politics, Controversy, Change, is available now in hardback. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact the Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com and don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.